Okay, welcome folks. Good morning. Hey guys, give us a wave. Good to see you all here today. Really warm welcome to church. Good to see you guys in the balcony and the main floor in the cafe. What an amazing week it's been. Let me add my welcome to, to, to Lucy and to Sammy's. Uh, my name's Pete, pastor at Destiny, and uh, we're going to take some time just to dive into the Bible and look at some great truths. We love the Bible, and if you're visiting with us today, welcome to our journey. We, we love journeying through the Bible, just letting it speak to us. And, and sometimes when, it, when we, look, we look at the Bible, it just, it just challenges us and touches us really deeply. So that's my prayer that that will happen in our lives just now. Let's, let's pray and invite God just to speak to us. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you're here. Thank you that you're among us and you know every person in this room. Father, I pray just now as we unpack the Bible, I ask, I ask that you'd actually speak to us. I pray you'd reveal yourself to us in a very profound and deep way. I pray each person, whether this is their first time at church or whether they're regular, that you would speak. God, draw those who are far from you close today. Do miracles in our midst. Heal sick bodies. Help people, set people free from things that have held them back. And people who don't know you today, I pray they would come to know you even, even in this service. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, many of you will know Winnie. Winnie is part of our local gathering here in Leith. She's been part of our gathering here in Leith for about 10 years, actually. And Winnie probably only has a few days left on earth. She's going to heaven. Me and Angie spent time with her yesterday in the morning. And it wasn't a morbid time. She's got such a bright spirit. And she, you know, we, we, we prayed with her, and then she prayed with us. And she was thanking God for this church, thanking God for 10 years in this church, and, uh, and, and the impact that you folks have made in her life. And, and she's also really excited about meeting God. Excited, she's met God, and that means you can meet God. <laughs> and she's excited about being with God for all eternity and the reality of heaven. Earlier, I'm going to link that together. Earlier this week, me and Ange, we took time and we were climbing Ben Glass. We went right up to the top of Ben Glass. And I love climbing because the higher you go, the further you can see, right? You know what it's like. It's like your perspective changes the higher you go. And when I think of Winnie, I just think, do you know what? That's what happens in life. When you connect with God, when God becomes incredibly real for you, your perspective changes. Start seeing things different. You view death differently. You view life differently. You view relationships differently. You view everything differently. So here's what we want to do today. I want to take you really high. We're going to go on a climb up a mountain, and I want you to have an experience and an understanding of God, probably like in a depth and maybe in a way that you've never had before. So that's what we're going to do, and we're going to just, we're following on in the verses we've been looking at, we're picking up from where we left off last week. We're in John chapter 17, and here we're going to look at the incredible subject of the Trinity. Say, wow. Okay, so here we go. This is Jesus speaking, ears wide open, ready to get your thinking hats on and your hearts wide open. Let's, let's, God, let, let's hear what God has to say. John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they be also in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them your glory, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought together to, into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Wow. Okay, so here Jesus, in this prayer, describes two relationships, two communities. The first relationship and community he's describing is the community and the relationship he has eternally had with the Father. That's, you saw that in the verses, right? He's describing how they've got this incredible relationship. In fact, before anything, 
the Father loved the Son. That's what he said in those verses. That there's this relationship, this eternal reality in the Trinity. There's a relationship within God himself. And then he talks about a second relationship, the relationship that we have with each other. Yeah, you see that in the verses? And he, and he, and this, he links the two. He says, God, Father, let them be one just as we are one. And he prays that somehow or another that Trinitarian relationship has an impact on how we relate on planet Earth. So here's the deal. The higher we go, the more it's going to change our perspective. The closer we get to God, the more we grasp of God, the more God impacts our life, the more it will influence and infiltrate every aspect of our life. That there is an ultimate relationship which can affect all relationships. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, two halves of the message. First half is I'm going to unpack for you the Trinity. All right? That's a bit of a tough gig in, in kind of 20 minutes, okay? I'm going to unpack for you as best I can, and I'm only going to be able to hit the highlights on, on the Trinity. I'm going to say three statements about the Trinity, and then I'm going to talk about, well, what are the implications? How does that affect you in your day job tomorrow? How does that affect you this week as you face your challenges? We've got three huge implications, because by the way, the implications of understanding the Trinity are huge. I want you to get this. I want your hearts to be open. God wants to speak to you just now. So you're going to have to really think, and for some of you, that's going to be the first time in a long time. Anyway, just kidding, just kidding. Okay, so the Trinity, the Trinity. We believe that in one God. Say amen if you agree. Okay, we're not polytheists, we're monotheists. We believe in the existence of one God who has eternally existed in three persons. That's what we believe. Now, we're not by ourselves in that. We kind of agree with 32% of the world's population on that one. 32% of the world's population are not only monotheists believing in one God, but they are Trinitarian monotheists, Christians. That would include the Protestants, all the Protestant denominations, mainline denominations, all the Catholic churches, all the Eastern Orthodox churches. 32% of the world's population in those three groupings that would believe that there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons. Now, the idea of one yet three isn't an unfamiliar concept. In fact, many of the things that define our reality would be Trinitarian in nature. Let me, let me give you an example. First of all, time. Time is Trinitarian in nature. Time is past, present, and future, yeah? You couldn't have time unless you have all three. If there wasn't such a thing as the past, that wouldn't be time. One thing is defined by three things, okay? Another one would be space. Space is understood in a Trinitarian way. It's height, depth, width. If you didn't have one of those, you wouldn't have space. You'd only have two dimensions. You have to have three dimensions to have space. In other words, one thing is defined by three facets. And then you have things like matter, which appears as gas, liquids, and solid. Now, you're made up of those, hopefully more solid right, than gas right, or, or other things, okay? But anyway, we can, we can debate that one afterwards. I'm sure there's varying degrees in the room. But, anyway, but, you know, matter wouldn't be matter were it not for those three states. And even you, you're Trinitarian. You as a reality are Trinitarian. The Bible says in Thessalonians that you have a spirit, soul, and a body. You do. And, you, I mean, you constantly have conversations with yourself. You don't want to admit that to people. You're going to get locked up if you do. But you do. You always have, I mean, this morning you had a conversation with yourself. The alarm went off. Your body said, don't get out of bed. Your brain said, but so-and-so's invited me to church. I need to go. And your heart says, and it's the right thing to do. And your heart won. Give your hearts a round of applause. Right there, your spirit got it right. Okay, so you have this little, you have a debate, you talk to yourself all the time, I want, no, no, don't do that. Okay, so you do all these kind of things, and you're Trinitarian in your own side, and the Bible says you've been created in the image of a God who is himself, one God in three persons. You're not three people, you're one person, but you have three aspects to you. But God, in, not, not in the same way, but in a, in, a very, in, a, in a similar headline way, God exists as one God in three persons. Let me take you on a journey through the Bible, just unpacking some of those things. The disciples who Jesus was with when he prayed this prayer, they were starting to get a grasp of who Jesus is. They'd spent three years with him. They were scratching their heads. Every time he did a miracle or raised the dead or walked on water or was transfigured, they thought, this is not just another guy. They knew there was something unique, and they had this Bible, the ancient scriptures, the Old Testament, and they were in the ancient scriptures. It started it starts unpacking this picture that God is more than just one person, that God exists in three persons, yet he's only one God. 
And, and then as you come into the New Testament, it becomes inc- even clearer. Let me take you right back to the beginning of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, 26. God's speaking, and God says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. In the Hebrew language, that's not just in the English language, it's plural. You see that? Us, our. That's plural. God could have said, let me make man in my image. He didn't say that. It's an accurate translation into the English, accurate. God says, literally, let us make man in our image. In the Greek language, sorry, in the Hebrew language in which it was written, it is a plural. And for many for many generations, the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis who've had this scripture have scratched their heads over that text because they just don't understand the concept that God would be the three yet one. So they've debated in in the Mishnah and the Talmud and and the various rabbinical writings, they've been debating, well, who was God speaking to? Was he speaking to angels? But then they would say, but no, he couldn't have been speaking to angels because we weren't created in the image of angels and angels weren't involved in creating us. God created us in his image. And now we understand the Trinity, we understand, ah, that's what that verse means. Uh, Let's go to a famous verse in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The Lord is our God's. The Lord is one. In the Hebrew language, there's two words there that I want to draw your attention to. First of all, the word for God, and then secondly, the word for one. The word for God's is is the Hebrew word's um, Elohim, which is plural in its form, not singular, plural. But it, we know it's not referring to many gods. We know it's referring to one god, singular. And yet it refers to him in the plural. Interesting. And also the word one is the, is the Hebrew word echad, which, trans, which literally means a unity, a perfect unity. So there we see one god in, perfect, in three persons in perfect unity. And again, you come into Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, where Isaiah receives his commissioning. This is what God says to Isaiah in that famous commissioning. He says, then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Plural. Again, God referring to himself in the plural. Now we come in, and hey, these are just the highlights. We could go into, we could spend the next few hours looking at verses in the Old and New Testaments to unpack for us the idea of the Trinity. We move into the New Testament. This is what Jesus says to his disciples just before ascending back to the Father. He appeared to them alive, risen from the dead, and he says to them in Matthew 28, therefore, go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He said, baptize them in the name, not in the names, in the name it's singular. Now, it would have made more grammatical sense for him to say, baptize them in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or, if he was going to use the singular version, name, he could have said, baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. But he didn't do either of those. He said, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. So, let me give you just some summary statements, three summary statements, which theologians have come up with which would sum up the classical understanding of what the Trinity is all about. And these three statements, each one of these statements, have a mountain of Scripture behind them to give you scriptural backing for each one of these statements. Here's the three statements. and Each of the three statements need to be held together. This is our understanding of the Trinity, our Trinitarian statements. Number one, God eternally exists as three persons. Number two, each person is fully God. Number three, there is one God. As I say, I'm going to come to how this will apply to your life, and boy, does this apply to your life, but I want you to understand it first. I want you to climb this mountain. I want you to have a picture because it will change your perspective. First statement, God eternally exists as three persons. Now, I believe that. I don't believe that God, I don't believe in modalism where you kind of sometimes see God like the Father, like, okay, like me, I'm one person but sometimes you see me as pastor, my kids see me as dad, and my wife sees me as husband. That's not how God is. It's not that you, it's like, not like one God in three disguises, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about one God in three persons. He actually is three distinct persons. And here's a, here's a, a diagram that's often used to describe this. Here we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But just to be clear, the Father is not the Son. 
And the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. But the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. They are distinct, absolutely, and yet, nevertheless, they are one. There are various points in this talk where you would say, this doesn't make sense. And I'm with you in that. Just because it doesn't make sense, though, we shouldn't not talk about it, and we should not say amen to everything we say, okay? There are many things. There are many things that are glorious and wonderful and simple at first sight. For example, a sunset, or appreciation of a smell of a flower, or color. They seem so simple and so beautiful, and the experience of them is wonderful. And yet, if you were to go into the complexity of what's going on behind the scenes as that sun rises and its rays travel at uh, speed of light all the way to you, and it hits the atmosphere and creates those lights, and then it gets through the filter of your eye and hits the back of your retina, and then it sends all these chemicals around your body, and you have all those sensations. It's complex, right? But it's wonderful. And my experience, you don't need to have an understanding of the complexity of God to understand and experience Him in a wonderful way. But I'm telling you, there's a wonderful complexity behind it all that God wants you to see today that will help you. God is three and yet one. Let's go to some Bible verses. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It says two things about Jesus. It says he was with God, i.e., he is a distinct person from the Father. But the Bible also says he is God, i.e., Jesus is God. Now, what cults do, like Jehovah's Witnesses or like Moron, sorry, Mormons, <laughs> um, is, is that what they do is they will overemphasize verses, they will overemphasize verses which focus on he was with God, like he's praying. You see him praying to the Father. Of course he's praying to the Father because they're two different persons. Or you see him on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, because they're two different persons. They will emphasize those verses, but they will neglect or they will change in their scriptures. They will. You will find references to him being God, which are there just as much as the ones that emphasize him being with God. They're all there, and I just don't think it's integrity to pick some over the others. You've got to hold it all together in tension. And I understand that creates a tension because we're left with huge dilemmas, but that dilemma is resolved by calling him the Trinitarian God. So he's with God, yet he is God. Jesus and the Father are distinct persons. We saw that in the prayer Jesus prayed. Verse 24 of the prayer we read says, Jesus said, you loved me before the creation of the world. The Father loved the Son before anything. Before anything was the Father loved the Son. That's an eternal reality. It infers different persons. Okay, the Holy Spirit is a distinct person from the Father and the Son. Here's a verse. Jesus praying and said, John 16, it is to your advantage that I go away, Jesus said to his disciples. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But when I go, I will send him to you. Now again, what's interesting is what's going on behind the scenes in the Greek language. The word spirit is a neutral word. Now, if, you've, if you know French, um, you know there's masculine and feminine nouns, yeah? And you so use le and la to describe the masculine and the feminine. You understand? When it comes to the Greek language, they have masculine and feminine, but they also have neuter. They have neutral nouns. This Holy Spirit, word spirits, the Greek word pneuma, is a neutral noun. So what would the pronoun be before a neutral noun? It would be it. So, if you, if G, so, Jesus is describing the word spirit. If he was going to be grammatically correct, he wouldn't say when he comes. He would say when it comes, because the word spirit is a neutral noun. So, the pronoun would be it, but Jesus breaks language and he refers to the Holy Spirit as a person, because he didn't care about breaking the grammaticalness, <laughs> like I just did there. He cared more about being accurate to exactly who the Holy Spirit is is. He's not a force like in Star Wars, okay? He's a person who is God, the Holy Spirit, and we see him displaying personal actions. He doesn't operate like an it or a thing. The Holy Spirit is a person. We see he teaches us, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He reveals to us. He comes to guide us. He says he, he speaks to us. He helps us in our weakness, the Bible says. He intercedes for us, Romans chapter 8. He comforts us. He can be grieved by us, Ephesians chapter 4. And he convicts us, John chapter 16. 
the Holy Spirit is constantly displaying personal traits. He is a person. So statement number one, God eternally exists as three persons. Statement number two, each person is fully God. So this is, like some people say they use different analogies to try and describe the Trinity, and typically the analogies fall short. One such analogy is the pizza. So you have a pizza, and uh, you cut the pizza into thirds. So you know, that's just like the Trinity, but it, it really isn't on so many levels, okay? And, and here's why, because Jesus isn't a third of God. The Father isn't a third of God, and the Holy Spirit isn't a third of God. Jesus is all that God is. The Father is all that God is. The Holy Spirit is completely all that God is. And so if you have a third of a slice of pizza, you haven't got the whole pizza. You've only got a third of the slice. But when you've got Jesus, you've got all of God. When you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got all of God. When you've got the Father, you have all of God. So each person is fully God. So let's just go through them. The Father is fully God. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. Jesus is fully God. It's interesting the title Lord is used in reference to Jesus in the New Testament over 200 times, Lord Jesus, or people would fall before him and say, Lord, 200 times. And yet that same title in the Greek version of the Old Testament is used in reference directly to God 6,800 times. The word God in the New Testament, which is the Greek word theos, is used mostly typically in reference to the Father. However, on seven or eight occasions in the New Testament, the word theos, God, is directly used in reference to Jesus himself. Let me give you a few examples. John chapter 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. And again, you see with God and being God there in the one. Again, you see it. The only God, Jesus is fully God. Who is at the Father's side? Jesus is with God, with the Father. You see it in that verse as well. Here's an amazing moment where Jesus had risen from the dead and the disciples saw him alive. It says in John chapter 20, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my gods. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Thomas declared Jesus to be Lord and God. Not just a man, but Jesus himself is Lord and God. And Jesus endorsed that believing by saying that those who believe in me like that are blessed. Any blessed people here today who believe that Jesus is Lord and God? Wow, you're really blessed. That's, that's blessed believing. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And he displays all the attributes of being God. Jesus pre-existed birth. Not one of us did that. We started at birth. Jesus had no beginning. He pre-existed birth. The Bible says in the New Testament, he created and he sustains the world. The New Testament teaches that he will judge the world. Only God can judge the world. Jesus will judge the world. The Bible teaches that it shows us that Jesus received worship. Now, you see that as he performed many miracles. You see, in the, in, when he calmed the storm, the disciples worshiped him. He didn't refuse that. He didn't say, oh, no, you can't do that. It's blasphemous. I'm just a guy. He didn't do that. He received it. And as you also look in the book of Revelation, not only did men worship Jesus, but angels worshiped Jesus. Revelation chapter 5, verse 12 Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. This is a declaration that angels are making, and they're saying glory and praise to Jesus Christ. That's not blasphemy. That's worshiping the true God. And you see, titles and metaphors that are used for gods are equally used of Jesus, because Jesus is God. So Jesus is referred to as Savior, the Rock, the light, the judge, the redeemer, the creator, the giver of life, the forgiver of sins, the pre-existent one, the bridegroom, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the king of kings and the lord of lords, the great shepherds and master. 
King James V, who lived in Scotland way back in the 1500s, apparently there were a number of occasions during his reign when he would disguise himself like a peasant and he would come down off his throne, he would put on the robes and, of, and the garments of a peasant and would go and live among the common people. He did this so he could understand the challenges they were facing. He could understand the pains they faced so he could have compassion on them. And then having spent time in disguise with the common people, he would return to his throne and he was able with fatherly care to lead them and rule them with great compassion and mercy. Did he, when he became like a peasant, did he become any less than a king? Not at all. In fact, I would say he was more of a king. And Jesus Christ did not become any less divine by becoming fully man. He didn't become any less of a king. In fact, in our estimation, what a king. What a king. And he didn't just come so he can empathize with you and know what you're going through. He came to die in your place. He needed to be a man to die on behalf of all mankind. God has died for you. And he rose again and he's alive right now. That's what God thinks about you. In case you were worrying, in case you were thinking, does God think much about me? Oh yes, oh yes. He thinks no one else has done that for you, but God has done that for you. This God not only sympathizes with you and gets you, this God died in your place and resurrected. Let's hear it for Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Now, let me read you a quote from the Assemblies of God World Missions. They said this, of the estimated thousands of new believers in Iran over the last few years, over half of them have become believers because they personally had a vision of Jesus in their dreams or in visions while they were awake. Isn't that amazing? Thousands of Muslim peoples are having visions of Jesus, and they're suddenly realizing he's not just a man or a prophet. He's God. We, we've just started a church in northeastern Nigeria, and one of the first guys who came to the church was a guy called Ida Iza, who had six nights in a row had a vision of Jesus in his dreams. He woke up knowing that he needed to find the pastor of the church that we've just started, and he gave his life to Jesus. He gave his life to Jesus, became a follower of Jesus, despite knowing that in doing so, he was putting his own life in jeopardy. He's literally had to be relocated from that city, Gombe, to another city, so he's safe. Because if his family and the community discover he's converted from Islam to Christianity, he'll be killed. But he couldn't deny what he'd seen. He had a vision of Jesus, and he knew he wasn't just a man. It's not just a prophet that he'd been told. He was none other than God in the flesh, and he gave his life to become a follower of that Jesus. Jesus is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. Peter calls the Holy Spirit God. So three statements. Statement number one, God eternally exists as three persons. Statement number two, each person is fully God. And statement number three, that we all, these statements we hold together, statement number three is there is one God. Isaiah 45 verse 5, I am the Lord and there is none other. Apart from me, there is no God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God. One of the greatest scientists of all time, Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, said this about God. The most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent, powerful being. And I agree. You see, the gods of the Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians were often gods that related to things within creation, moon, stars, solar systems, the ocean. But all of these things were created. And any gods, you see, by definition, God is the uncreated creator. He's the one with no beginning. He's the originator of all things, but he has no origin. He is the originator. He is the source of life. He just, he just is, I am. He just always has been, always will be. And that's by very definition, God just is. And by very definition, there can only be one God, because if there was two, one of them must have had a beginning before the other. And God is the original originator of all things, and therefore there is only one God. When we're talking about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit being um, persons of the Trinity, we're not saying there's three gods. No way. 
That's what many Muslims believe that Christians are saying. We're not saying that. We are monotheistic to the core. I believe there's only one God. Now, here's our dilemma. So, um, Lucy, Sammy, and John, good, good guys, can you stand to your feet? So, here we have, I don't know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I don't know. So, hey, son. So, here we have, like, but then we've got three persons here, right? We've got one person, two persons, three persons. So, in one sense, there are three persons in God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons. But the problem we've got here is that we also have three beings. John's a being, Sammy's a being, and Lucy's a being. So, we've got three persons, but we've also got three beings. And the problem is this. In God, you only have one being, even though it exists in three persons. Thanks, guys. So, that's our dilemma. This is well outside of our frame of reference, but many things are. For example, eternality. We had a beginning. That's outside of our frame of reference, but God's always been. But we nevertheless believe it. Omnipresence. We're present, but God's everywhere, and yet we believe it. Omnipotent, all-powerful. We're, we're limited, but God's unlimited. And yet we say, okay, because it by, it's okay for God to be, on, be beyond our frame of reference. It's okay. And God has chosen to disclose Himself to the world in this way. God has eternally existed as three persons. Statement number two, each person is fully God. Statement number three, there is one God. So, why is this important for you and me? I've got three huge implications for your life. You ready? No, you're not. Oh, you are. Okay, so just, you ready? Okay, that's just checking. Okay. Number one, the Trinity reveals that you were wired for love. Jesus prays. Let's go back to that prayer he prayed at the beginning. Verse 24, you loved me before the creation of the world. God has eternally existed in relationship. C.S. Lewis, the great writer and author, he said this, if God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. In other words, C.S. Lewis is absolutely right. If God didn't exist in a Trinitarian relationship, then God could not be love. Because to love, you have to have an object to love. You understand? You have to have someone else to love. You can't just experience love just by yourself. You need to have another to love. And therefore, if God was a single person, He was a lonely God. And He needed to create beings in order to have an experience of love. And then He learned to love. And any God that needed to learn isn't really my God. There are many religions, for example, Judaism and Islam, who believe in one God but don't understand the Trinity. In those religions, they have no concept that before the world was created, God existed in love. Therefore, those religions are hallmarked by the next great attribute of God, all, His all-powerfulness. And therefore, those religions are hallmarked by power and absolutisms. However, we understand, along with the power, we believe in that, we also understand the love. Only in Christianity does love precede life. In every other religion, life needed to be created in order for love to be experienced. But God didn't need to create anything because God was already experiencing perfect union and perfect love. And therefore, we say, and God says, and the Bible says, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. The only reason there's love in this whole universe is because God is love. The only reason you can give love and receive love is because you've been created in the image of God, who is love. You see, if God was completely satisfied, self-sufficient, complete, with no needs, why then did He create us? Well, He didn't create us because He was needy. The answer is, if He had no needs, the reason He created us was because He wanted to share with us His relationship and His love. He didn't create you primarily to give something to God. He created you primarily to get something from God. That's amazing. It says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, even before the world, he, he made the world, God loved us and chose us. Before anything, God loved you. Before a solar system, God loved you. And therefore, your number one purpose in life 
above your giving to God or serving God or even your loving Him is to be loved by Him. You are not primarily here to give something to God. You are primarily here, first and foremost, to receive something from God. And then everything we do comes from that. 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. Your doing, your serving comes from the root of knowing that you're loved. I love what Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Miserables, I love what he said. He said, the greatest happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved, loved for ourselves, or rather loved in spite of ourselves. You were created to know God. Now, to be loved but not known is kind of superficial. You know, oh, I love you, but you think you don't really know me. That's superficial. To be known but not loved, that's our greatest fear. And that's why many of you don't let people close. You think if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. So to be loved but not known is superficial. But to be known and not loved, that's our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, that's exactly how God loves you. He knows everything there is to know about you, and He couldn't love you any more than He does. And do you know what that does? It removes from you your pretense. Okay, it removes all pretense. We're fully known. It humbles us, stops us, it gets us out of our pride of self-centeredness and, and self-righteousness. It melts our hearts. It motivates us more than any other motivating factor, more than fear, more than deadlines, more than anything else. The love of God motivates us and changes us more than anything else. I love that. And because this God is infinite, His relationship with you is like no other relationship. See, I'm a dad. I've got two, I've got two kids, my son Michael and my daughter Becky. Now, when I'm giving Michael my full devotion and time and attention, the reality is I can't at the same time as that be giving Becky my full devotion and time. Why? Because I'm stuck in this thing called time. I'm stuck in this thing called space. I'm not omnipresent, and I'm stuck in time and space. However, God, who is the infinite God, is not stuck in time and space. And therefore, God is able to give 100% of Himself to every single of the 7 billion people who are currently alive on planet Earth. And that's what an amazing God we serve. He's infinite. He's in love. And the implication of the Trinity is that before life, there was love. God is love, and we're created in His image. Isn't that amazing? You were wired for love. Let's hear it for Jesus, who is our great Savior. Implication number two is the Trinity reveals unity in diversity is possible. Let's go back to Jesus' prayer, verse 20 to 23. I pray that those who believe in me through their message, and I guess you could say, well, that's us. We've we've believed in, in Jesus because down through the generations, people have told the world about Jesus, and we're, we're in that prayer, that they may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me, that they may be brought to complete unity. Now, we're in a, in a very polarized and divided world, but Jesus says in the midst of that world, there will be a people who will be one, and their oneness will not be based on their hobbies or based on their common interests, but rather in a common relationship that they have with the triune God. You know, 80% of your greatest joys and happinesses in life are directly linked to the relationships you experience on earth. Fact. And equally, the vast majority of the heartache and pain and suffering you've gone through also came because of the breakdown of relationships in our lives, correct? We're wired for relationship. And here Jesus gives us the ultimate answer to the ultimate relationship that will impact all relationships. You see, what was the first thing, going right back to the very beginning of time, what was the first thing that happens when we severed our relationship with our Creator at the very beginning? When we severed our relationship with Creator, a cascade effect happens the next thing to happen was there was a breakup of the relationship of the husband and wife. Adam and Eve start blaming each other. Next thing that happened was sibling rivalry and Cain murdered Abel. 
Next thing that happened, like an epidemic all around the world, sickness, suffering, disasters, world conflicts, and breakdown of relationship on a, on a global scale. It all feeds back to this ultimate relationship which is broken, the relationship between us and God. And then when you come to the New Testament and Jesus dies on the cross and rises again in order that you and I can be reconnected in that relationship with God, as people come into that relationship, what's the first thing that happens? Acts chapter 2, a church is birthed. What do you see in that church? This incredible unity that when the reconnection with God happens, reconnection with human being happens. And what you see in the church, in the book of Acts, in the early church, is unity in the midst of diversity, international community, where nationality is no longer what binds us together, but our relationship with God, where, where you have this incredible community of people who are incredibly diverse and yet incredibly united. P.H. Reardon, a, a theologian, said this, the relationship that exists within the Godhead is the basis for unity in every human relationship, be it marriage, family, or the church. And Jesus said, May they be one as we are one. As we, so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are different, and yet they are one. Unity in diversity. You know, we, we hear this, you hear the phrase, birds of the feather flock together. Well, not so in the church. It's not, you know, I love this church. I love 32 plus nationalities in the church. I love that we're from, it doesn't matter the color of our skin, black, white, and any shade in between, right? We love uh, rich and poor in the church together. I love that the rich are here and the poor are here. I love that. Rich people, give them some of your money, okay? I, 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 lo- I love that you've got different social classes. I love that you've got different educational backgrounds. Some of you are very educated. Some of you are very uneducated. It doesn't matter. I love that. I love that this richly diverse culture comes together, and what unites us is deeper than any hobby or deeper than any uh, social thing. It's our relationship with the creator of the universe, God. The Trinity reveals that unity and diversity is possible, and when unity and diversity happens, it impacts the city. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, so that the world will believe that you have sent me. What happens when the church is united and flowing in that unity? When you're not just thinking unity, but you're actually helping people when they're struggling, going to their house when they're sick, giving them money when they're needing money, helping them out through the hardest times, listening to them when they're down. How, what happens to the city when a church does that, when churches do that? Answer, the world believes that Jesus was sent by the Father. It is the biggest evidence of one of our greatest apologetics to the world is a united church. In 96, when my mum died, the church rallied around us as a family. It was amazing. They took our ironing and they did their ironing for us. They cooked us meals for several weeks. They came to home visit us. And even now, my dad, 20 or so years on, my dad still gets phone calls on a regular basis from the church. Incredible. My uncle John, who was an atheist, he was looking on at what he was seeing, how the church rallied around my family, and he said, if this is Christianity, then I'm interested. Because when the world sees a united church, not just united in name, but united in reality, it is a witness to the world, and it tells them this is the exact relationship you were born to have, not just with people, but also with the Creator. And then the third implication is this, and this is huge. Trinity reveals salvation is possible. You see, here's the problem. Religions and cults which reduce Jesus down to just being merely a man or a prophet undermine the very foundation of salvation. Why? Because only one who is fully God and fully man could bear the scale of the weight of the sin of the world placed on one being on behalf of all beings. The full venting of God's wrath was let loose on one person And that person couldn't have just been a man. He had to be fully God and fully man to carry the scale of that cosmic weight on behalf of the human race. Secondly, justification by faith would not be possible because if Jesus was just a man, then how could you believe in a man in order to be saved? You have to believe in God in order to be saved. In order to be saved, he needed to be, yes, a man because he needed to be one of us to die on behalf of all of us. But he also needed to be fully God's because you cannot put your faith in man. You must put your faith in God, who happens to be a man called Jesus Christ. Thirdly, idolatry is at stake. How could you call a man Lord? 
but one who is fully God and fully man, he can be your Lord and he can be your Savior. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 23, then they will know that you sent me, and listen, have loved them even as you have loved me. What did Jesus get from dying on the cross? Well, some people might say, okay, he got our adoration. He got our allegiance. And yes, he did. But that wasn't primarily why he went to the cross. What was the cross all about? The cross was not all about him. The cross was all about you. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. The cross was about you. On Wednesday afternoon, I was chatting to a, a Polish guy on the streets, and I, I asked him the question, if you, first time I've ever met this guy, if you were to die today, are you absolutely certain, beyond all shadow of doubt, that you go to be with God forever in heaven? And the man burst into tears. And he said to me, I was planning and taking my life today. And then he, he proceeded to, he pulled out some razor blades he had in his pockets. That was, that was the means by which he was going to do it. He'd already got rid of his phone. He'd given up his house. He was not planning on living another day. And he started weeping, and he started opening up his heart and life. And I started telling him about the Savior Jesus, who died so that he could be forgiven and have hope in this life and in eternity. And the man said, I have done things that I could not be forgiven for. And he said, and when I was growing up in Poland, I was being told by people that there are certain sins I've committed that can never be forgiven. And I, so I pointed him to Jesus on the cross, and I said, do you understand? That was the greatest cosmic act that ever took place for every human being. That one man who happened to be God died on behalf of all people. Your sins, every single one, even the worst of them, cannot measure up to the, the radicalness of the grace that is emitted from that one act that took place 2,000 years ago in that cross and that resurrection. And he broke down weeping, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. We now have a brother who's Polish. How good is that? You have any idea how much God loves you? You have any idea how much God loves you? The Bible says, look at what it says, verse 23, and you have loved them even as you have loved me. Salvation is possible. Listen, folks, because this, this relationship, this eternal relationship of love that has existed within the Trinity for all eternity before even we, we were conceived or before ever we were created or the whole world or galaxy existed, this relationship, which is an eternal relationship, the purest, the greatest, the most ultimate of loves, this love between, within God himself is now pointed towards you. The same love with which the Father has eternally loved the Son is exactly the same love with which the Father loves you. Be very secure. Be very grateful. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the incredible love that you've displayed for this world. When you came into this world, when you set aside divine privileges, when you humbled yourself, you became a man, you walked in the dusty streets of the Roman Empire, and then ultimately you died on the cross to save people like us. No sin is too great to combat your radical love and the blood you shed. No person is too far from you, God. All people can know God through that sacrifice and through that resurrection. God, we thank you. God, we believe you eternally exist as one God in three persons. And God, it's an amazing thought. It's an amazing truth. It's hard for us to grapple with. But today we say, we believe you. We believe you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. In a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity today, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, to make that choice, to give your life to the one who gave his life for you. Just sing that song with me for a moment. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me 
so little ones to him belong they are weak but he is strong yes Jesus loves me yes Jesus loves me yes Jesus loves me sing it from your heart that's you today and you're saying, Peter, I kind of believe it, but I really want to know him. I don't want to live another day without Jesus in my life. He's here. He wants to be your savior. He's here right now. He's God. So if that's you, just pray this prayer with me just now. If you're saying, Peter, I want God in my life, then repeat this prayer after me, just one line at a time under your breath. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your love for me. Jesus, thank you for coming into this world, for dying in my place on the cross so that I could be forgiven for all my sin, for rising again in the third day. Thank you that you're alive right now, risen from the dead. Today, I put my faith in you. Be my saviour. Be my Lord and my God. Have my life. Have my future. Have my trust. Thanks for hearing my prayer. If you just prayed that prayer, I believe God heard you. I want to pray for you. I want to bless you as you make this moment of decision. In this moment, I want to bless you. I want to help you. I want to pray for you. And in order to know who I'm praying for, if you're here, anywhere in this room or in the cafe or in the balcony, if you prayed that prayer, if that's, if that's the decision you made in your heart there, I want to pray for you. In order to know who I'm praying for, just slip your hand up where you're sitting. Everyone else is praying, just pop your hand up quickly. If that's you today, and that's the decision you're saying, thank you. Is anyone else? Today you're making him Lord, God of your life. If that's you, just pop your hand up. I want to pray for anyone who made that decision. Is there anyone like that today? Anyone else? It's the greatest, most important decision. Thank you. In the cafe there. Great decision. Is there anyone else? Thank you. In the main floor here. That's brilliant, mate. God's heard you. Is there anyone else? Okay, God, I pray for these three people. They've just made this decision before God. And I know you've heard their prayer. And I pray this will be the beginning of a new life. A life in relationship with God. Bless them now as they embark on this journey. Thanks for hearing their prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.